This evening we're going to be looking at the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through to, that can't be right, I'll put 24. Luke, Luke chapter 11, 15 verse 11 through to 32. Prodigal son, it's helpful if you know what a prodigal is. A prodigal is a person who spends money in a reckless, extravagant way. This evening we shall consider a prodigal son who took his share of his inheritance early. He left home to lead a prodigal life, a reckless life, but later he came back to his father in deep sorrow. The parable of the prodigal son is part of a response of the Lord Jesus Christ to some Pharisees and scribes who who had observed him and criticised him for receiving sinful people and shock of all shock of horrors they saw Jesus eating with uh, publicans and sinners. Initially Jesus told them a parable about a shepherd who looked for and rescued one of his lost sheep. He left the 99 other sheep and he went off to look for the lost sheep. And as we saw that is a picture of how lost sinners are sought and found and saved by the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. The parable of the prodigal son that we shall consider this evening is different. We're looking at it from a different perspective. The lost sheep, the the emphasis was on the Lord Jesus Christ doing the searching, uh, the finding and the saving. But this evening, with the prodigal son, the emphasis is on the the, uh, sinner coming to Jesus or being given the grace given faith and repentance to be saved. So it's a different perspective on things, but ultimately we're going to see the grace and the mercy of Almighty God towards um, a sinner, a helpless sinner, someone who is unworthy. Look at verse 11 in Luke chapter 15. And he said, a certain man had two sons. It's generally accepted that the father in this parable depicts God, who is abundant in mercy and grace. He had two sons. However, you needn't launch into this parable thinking, well, okay, the father represents God. He's got two sons, so therefore I guess that must mean that the two sons are two Christians, because Christians they know God as their father. It's not quite as straightforward as that. You needn't imagine that the two sons are both born-again Christians. Rather than it being a picture of the household of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just as well to see it as representing the Jews, some of whom believed and were saved, whereas most of them didn't. At this early stage, it is as well to remind ourselves whom Jesus was talking to. I've already mentioned it, but let's look again at verses 1 and 2. It's important to see who the original audience was. Okay, verse 1 and 2. 
Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. You remember the publicans are tax collectors. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. As such, the older son, he can be seen to represent those self-righteous Pharisees and scribes who trusted in their own works for their acceptance before God. Their, their work, they, they were trusting in their obedience to the law of God for their acceptance. But of course, like all of us here, they all broke God's laws. We break God's laws and we can never trust in our own righteousness for to be accepted by God. All our righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. But uh, the older son can be seen to be like those Pharisees and scribes. Whereas the prodigal son is a picture of the publicans and the sinners. When you think of them, whether they were Pharisees and scribes or publicans and sinners, they were the same in as much as they all needed Jesus. No difference there. They were all equally in need of forgiveness and salvation from their sins, just like all of us now. However, the Pharisees and scribes did nothing more than moan as they saw the publicans and sinners communing with the Saviour. Well, look at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Let me ask you a question. What do you make of those words of the younger son? Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, whatever Bible version you're looking at, it's pretty much going to be the same in all of the Bible versions. To me, the younger son, he comes across as being very disrespectful to his father. Very ungrateful, very demanding. As for what he was demanding, his share of the inheritance, he was treating his father as if his father was already dead and buried. He didn't even bother to explain why he wanted his share early. Now, in this respect, I'm probably more like the Pharisees and the scribes who, as they were listening, again, let's remember that they were the audience, the scribes and the Pharisees, as they were listening, they would no doubt have been thinking of the fifth commandment, honour your father and your mother, There wasn't much of that coming from the younger son. Also, in Leviticus 19, verse 3, it is written, Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father. Again, there wasn't much of that. There wasn't any of that, was there? All that son would have received from me, again, I'm probably more like the Pharisees and the scribes here, If I had been the father in that situation, probably all that son would have received from me is a good whack, if I'm being honest with you. But clearly his father was a lot more gracious than I am. We're told that his father divided unto him and his brother his living. If that meant that the father's estate was divided up in accordance with the Old Testament law, 
Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 17, what that would have meant is the older brother receiving a double double portion. In other words, the younger son would have received a third of his father's estate and the other two thirds would have been kept for the older brother. How the father would have given his younger son a third of his substance whilst he was still alive is anybody's guess. We're not told. I guess we don't need to know. It's the same as you giving a spoilt, disrespectful child of yours a third of the value of your house while you're still alive, while you're still living there in that house, You've got your son who comes to you demanding his share and you make arrangements somehow, I don't know how you do it, to give him his third while you're still living in that house. As I've already said, the father in this parable was extremely gracious, but it is a picture of God who by the riches of his grace saves thoroughly undeserving sinners. That much we can be sure of. His father was very kind and gracious and that is a picture of God who is exceedingly gracious. He gives out of the riches of his grace. He saves us um, by the riches of his grace and mercy. The younger son wasted no time in going as far away as he could from his father and he wasted every penny on riotous living If his self-righteous brother is to be believed, he even spent it on prostitutes, according to verse 30. He He consciously cut himself off from his father by going as far away as possible. It says that he took his journey into a far country. We see that in verse 13. And not many days after... The younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So it's not just the neighbouring country. How far is that far country? How many borders did he go over? We don't know, but it's far at any rate. Was it really necessary to go that far from home? He consciously cut himself off from his father. He was free to do whatever he wanted without his father's interference. Many of you will probably relate to some degree what's going on with that younger son. And the reason I say that is because we've been there, haven't we? All of us, to varying degrees, that rebellion when we were young, Uh, under the control of our parents and we wanted independence. We really didn't always appreciate what we saw as interference from our mums and dads. So there's no great difference there. We don't all go to a far-off country, but there is that rebellion there against his father's authority. And there's nothing new in that. However, far more seriously, what can be seen in verse 13 is a picture of everybody who is living 
and living in rebellion against Almighty God. According to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 verse 3, such people take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And every time I read those verses from Psalm 2, I, you know, just for effect, I imagine people waving their puny fists towards heaven in rebellion against Almighty God as they seek to shake off the restraints as they see it from Almighty God. And it's no different when you read the the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Instead of going to Nineveh in obedience to God, Jonah deliberately boarded a ship that took him in the opposite direction. He was a prophet of God as well. So he was a man of God, although sometimes it's very difficult to see that. You can in certain places, but not when God gave a very clear instruction, go to Nineveh, and so he got on the ship and went the opposite direction. This is us, isn't it? It's most certainly everybody who is not trusting in Jesus. They are in rebellion against God. Maybe there's someone in here tonight who is in rebellion against God, waving your puny fist towards heaven in rebellion against God. But even the Christians in here, we need to uh, examine ourselves very carefully because we can so easily rebel against our God, our Heavenly Father, when it suits us to. That younger son represents all who treat God as if he is dead, But still they make full use of the resources that ultimately are provided by God. They are far from God, separated by their sins, their overriding sinful desire to do what they want, when they want, without interference from God. This is the sinful human nature. If that is still you, then you are a fool. You really are a fool. You need to know that there will be a day of reckoning. You may kid yourself on that God is dead or that God does not exist, but you are the one who will die when you come to God in judgment. For it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There will be that day of reckoning. And then when you're standing before God, then you try and say that there is no God. How foolish can you be? Don't be a fool. What happened next would not have been part of the prodigal's great plan. Rather, it was the result of him being far from his father and imagining that he could succeed on his own. Look at verses 14 through to 16. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent himself into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. He ran out of money. He ended up working for a Gentile. After all, he was in a land far, far away. 
He would have been working for a Gentile and that would have been a very, a great indignity for a Jew to work for a Gentile. And as for the nature of the work, feeding pigs. Well, pigs are unclean according to the laws that that, that God gave to the Jews. Also, the fact that he set his heart upon eating the pig's feed goes to show how desperate he was and how low he had sunk. What happened to the prodigal son illustrates the folly of being far from God. It can only ever end in disaster. As it is written in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It makes sense, doesn't it? Can you see that that makes sense when you're far from God, doing your own thing? It will end in disaster. Do you not see that? At this point, the Pharisees and scribes, they would have probably thought at this point, Uh, This part of the parable, this part of the story, it serves him right for leaving the family home. It serves him right for being so disrespectful to his father. And they would have also probably expected the story to end at that point. What else is there to say after all? He was rude to his father and now serves him right, working for a Gentile a million miles away, eating pig's food doesn't deserve anything else. However, where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds even more, as we see in the following verses, as Jesus does not end this parable now, but he continues with the story. And we shall continue with it. Let's have a look at verses 17 through to 20. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose And came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off. His father saw him. And had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck. And kissed him. And when he came to himself. Can you see that there? Look at verse 17. Key words there. And when he came to himself, this is when he reached rock bottom. When he came to himself. In other words, when he came to himself, his senses, and that speaks of the prodigal son coming to a recognition of his foolish ways. But more than that, he came to a recognition of his sinfulness. It speaks of repentance. Where we see those words in verse 17. And when he came to himself. This is the point where we see a God wrought repentance in that man's heart. 
Most people in the world never do come to themselves. They never do come to their senses until, not even throughout their lives, there's none of that. Instead, they continue to live for self with no regard for the glory of God and that's how they die. However, by the grace of God, the prodigal did reach that point in his life where he came to himself and he repented of his sin. And we see that to be the case in what follows. It's very clear that he repented of his sins. In verse 17, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. If nothing else there, he realised how foolish he was, how stupid he was, to think that he could go it alone. Look at verse 18 now. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I have sinned against heaven. You could probably work that one out for yourself. That means I have sinned against God. means the same thing. I have sinned before God. It's a very clear confession of sin. And his confession is uh, towards heaven to God. Verse 19. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. That speaks of humility before God. He recognises that he's worth, he's, he's lower than the servants or the same as the servants there. He is a nobody. He deserves nothing. He acknowledged his unworthiness. And verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. He arose and sought forgiveness from his father. Again, remember, He wasn't just in a neighbouring city or even the neighbouring country. He was far, far away. I don't want to read too much into this, but it's reasonable to, to say that he would not have been in a good condition. He would have been tired, weary. He wasn't eating good stuff, was he? He would have probably been emaciated in a bad way. And still, he rose up to go home to his father, to make that long, long journey home. It would have been a lot easier when he left his father to go to the far country than to make that journey all the way home again. But still, he did it. And so, the prodigal must have believed that despite everything that he had done, his father would forgive him that he would forgive him, otherwise there really was no point in him setting off on that journey in a weak and weary condition that he would have been in. Most people will at various times have regrets and they will be sorry for things. Just about everyone, I should imagine, goes through life at various times being sorry for something that they've said, something that they've done, and we're us British people were very good at saying sorry and we learn that at a young age to say sorry when we've done something wrong and it's drilled into us isn't it and we do and sometimes it's genuine enough 
we, we, we recognise that we've been said something inappropriate, done something silly, we apologise. That's what we should do at any rate. Most people do that, yet still they remain far from God forevermore. Even with all the apologies, you can say a million sorries throughout your life and still be far from God. Judas Iscariot was one such person. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was sorry for what he'd done. It it did appear to be sorry. In fact, he said to the chief priests and the Jewish elders, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. That's interesting, isn't it? I have sinned. I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. However, with Judas Iscariot, there was no godly sorrow. His confession of sin was not to heaven, to God, for sins committed against God. Whenever you do something wrong, ultimately, you are sin- your sin is against God. When you're transgressing God's laws, when you steal something, maybe, whatever it is, maybe you're stealing your employer's time, when uh, you're using the phone for private phone calls, or whatever it is, you steal something from somebody, ultimately, you're breaking God's commandment, thou shalt not steal. Sin is against God, your maker. Judas Iscariot, he, he sinned against He betrayed innocent blood, but it was not a godly sorrow that worketh repentance. This parable clearly depicts a sinner coming to God with a broken and contrite heart, acknowledging his sin against God and humbly seeking seeking forgiveness, believing that God is merciful. His reception by his father is a lovely picture of a repentant sinner receiving forgiveness from God. Let's have a look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The best robe of all is what? There is no better robe than the robe of righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that robe of righteousness is worn by all repentant sinners who are trusting in Jesus. Verse 23. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. How very different that is to eating pig's feed. It's a picture of God's abundant grace and it is a prelude to the great heavenly feast when all of the redeemed of the Lord will sit down and feast with their Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Verse 24 For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The condition of all who have not shown repentance towards God and trusted in Jesus. It's a picture of being spiritual paupers and being dead in their sins. However, 
It's something very different that is seen in verse 24. What we see there is deep joy on earth and in heaven when God meets sinners. While he was yet a long way away, the Father went out to meet him. God does the same. He comes to us. We saw that in the parable of uh, the lost sheep. If God waited for us to come to him, it just would not happen. While he was yet a long way off, God came to God. His father came to him and embraced him. And God comes to lost, helpless sinners and he saves them by his grace. The hymn writer said, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's how it was with the prodigal son. And by the grace of God. May each one of you be the same, having come to yourself, having come to your senses and cried out to God, believing that Jesus was wounded for your sins. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities on Calvary's cross. Amen.